From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. This is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, folks, welcome back. Welcome back to hour number two of this live broadcast here on Tuesday. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen, listening to and watching as well TNT today's news talk. Listening on the live stream, we've been putting those links out as well. You can also access the video stream as well on the main URL, tntradio.live. You'll see all the different options there, the icons. There'll be an embedded uh, YouTube stream there as well. So direct people to that. If you want to watch this program, if you want to see me, see the guests, or if you're busy and you just want to do the work around the yard, you're jogging, walking the dog, or whatever, uh, you can also do that on the audio stream as usual. Listen at your leisure. Download them on the podcasting platforms as well. Podbeam, certainly, that's a good archive up at tntradio.live. Listen back, go to your favorite show. You'll see the archive there broken by the hour what a great service provided by tnt only for you the listeners nobody else does that only this network this is why it's the best place right now for 24 7 365 talk radio great segment of course basil's always on point what can i say he's as sharp as ever and we'll be going on to talk to blake lovewell as well later in the first hour also going to talk to another guest hopefully we'll bring on to the program, our guests from the Palestinian Refugee Project, uh, to find out about what they're doing and how they're engaging in this story right now. Uh, but before we do that, I want to bring up a breaking story, which I think is going to be somewhat uh, fortuitous, uh, let's say. Russia has announced, they're making some big announcements. It's like they're setting something up. I just, I'm reading the tea leaves here. Moscow's getting ready to make a move. I, I don't know. I can just... I'm just getting the sense. Moscow likes to do everything by the book. Okay, They're always thinking about how the history books are going to write this uh, legally as well and also in accordance to international law. They're laying out their case right now. What, what case are they laying out? That's the question. Russia estimates, now they're announcing the uh, losses, official losses, according to their data. So uh, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu says that Ukraine has lost more than 383,000 troops, either killed or wounded, since February 2022. Right. So those are casualty numbers, approaching 400,000. That's what Shoigu's saying. So what does this mean? Uh, we can't get, they can't possibly have exact numbers on this. What they can have is pretty accurate ballpark numbers here. So a lot of people have been throwing around some pretty hefty figures based on a lot of different data points, synthesizing data and so forth. So I think that's probably at the bare minimum. I think this is accurate just based on how we've been watching this over the last two years. 383,000 troops killed or wounded. So according to Shoigu, since the start of the special military operation, the Ukrainian armed forces casualties have exceeded 383,000 service members killed and wounded. 14,000 tanks. Wow. <laughs> 14,000 tanks. That is more than most countries have in their total arsenal. In fact, it's more than probably 90% of the countries on this planet have uh, in their total arsenal. Infantry fighting vehicles as well. Infantry fighting vehicles. Those would be like Bradley uh, fighting vehicles. Okay. Those are basically out of action as well. And we'll add to that personal carriers. Now listen to this number. This might shock you. 553 warplanes. 
let's think about that for a minute. What is the total Ukrainian Air Force? What do they have in terms of planes? I'm going to say if they've lost that many warplanes, they don't have much left. They don't have much left. 259 military helicopters, 8,500 artillery units, like HIMARS and uh, howitzers, multiple rocket launch systems have been taken. Wow, Patriot missile batteries. Devastating. So, like, when this all started, Russia says we're going to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. I think they're on the way to being demilitarized. So, anyway, these are so when they start making these benchmark statements, there's something else going on. Oh, and here it is. I think this is what is being set up. Watch and listen closely. Russia ha now has a free hand in the conflict in Ukraine, says Vladimir Putin, Russian president, in a statement given just today this morning in fact moscow's ultimate goals remain unchanged the president said which i just said the demilitarization the denazification of ukraine the liberation of the donbass territories which are now part of the russian federation like it or not i'm sorry ukraine but that's the fact so is crimea it's not coming back Russia has the initiative, according to Putin, in the conflict. Therefore, they will be exercising a free hand. What is that free hand going to mean? Well, in essence, uh, we are doing whatever commanders decide active defense is best. It takes place. We're doing it. And where it's needed, we improve our positions. So to their, their goal right now, their motivation uh, is to show that their true masters at least have some results of their much-hyped so-called counteroffensive on the Ukrainian side. So that's that's all Ukraine's got, is to show the Washington that they're getting results on their counteroffensive. Everyone knows that that's a dead letter. It's not happening. Meanwhile, Shoigu is estimating, again, he's putting out the numbers of uh, dead soldiers. So that has huge political impact uh, on the Ukrainian side, but more so on the Western side. Are they ever going to give those true numbers in the West? Definitely not. Never. Never. Not even after they sign a peace deal. Because this is this is all about optics. Okay. And that is the most important statistic of of the of them all by the end is really how many troops have lost and is that price worth it? So if you can downgrade that number, then of course it means that the price you're paying isn't isn't is is going to be more worth it or not so high in in terms of human life. I know that's a very cynical way of looking at things, but this is how this is how it goes in war. Certainly from Washington's point of view, from Kiev's point of view, the EU point of view, they don't want to have that number too high because it's going to backfire badly on them politically. Definitely the Zelensky regime wants to say that it's like less than 100,000 or something. I mean, who are they kidding at this point? Have you seen the graveyards that they've knocked up to put these Ukrainian soldiers? It's horrific, okay? Imagine the families, how many families have been destroyed uh, because of this proxy war, this an obsession, uh, thinking that you're going to, you know, run a counteroffensive against the Russians in all these ultra fortified positions that Russia has uh, erected over the last 18 months. I mean, it's ridiculous. What are they selling to the Ukrainians? What's Zelensky selling? He's living on borrowed time. Everybody knows it. So is the regime in Kiev. So is this proxy war. It's just a question of when and how it's going to wind itself down. But this is absolutely horrific. So Russia's going to exercise a free hand. What does that mean? Could mean Mikolaev and Odessa. And then what? Joining up with the autonomous oblast known as Transnistria. 
And there you have it. No more coastline for Ukraine. Been talking about that for a while. It's bound to happen just by the looks of it. If it doesn't happen this year, even after an armistice was signed, it's probably still going to happen as well. What you have in Odessa is largely largely a Russian population, identifies as being Russian, run and control under control by Nazi battalions. As that is a Azov battalion's stronghold. They've sent the radicals and the crazies down there for a reason because they need to subdue the Russian population in Odessa. Historically, that's Russia. That's Nova Russia. Listen, I don't write the history books. I don't make up the maps. Just look it up. It only became, quote, Ukraine quite recently, and historically anyway. It's Russia. The people are Russian. They identify as Russian. They speak Russian. Culturally, they're Russian. Okay? So if Washington's going to insist on pushing this proxy war, uh, it's going to continue to come at a very high price for the country of Ukraine. And they're going to pay in territory, resources, and population. Either lost population through uh, secession uh, or population lost in through the mass conscription, forced conscription of, of young Ukrainian men, chucking them in the trenches for what? For nothing. Just literal human cannon fodder. Why? To please Washington. To please London. I mean, isn't that what it's about right now for the Zelensky regime? I mean, how corrupt have things descended to in, in this country? It's really sad. It's a tragedy. It's a national tragedy. Didn't have to happen. Ukraine would still be intact as a country. If only they had ratified the Minsk Accords. That's what Zelensky promised when he ran for president. Did he fulfill that promise? No, he did the opposite. Tore the country to pieces and sold it for a few bags of silver. Let's take a break right now with TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back after these messages. TNT Radio's Hervoy Morich. Approximately 650,000 Ukrainian men aged 18 to 60 have left Ukraine for Europe since the start of the war. It's a tough spot. If your country is being invaded, uh, that's one thing, and you're a, a male and a citizen. Um, but you know, if, the war, if it's a globalist war, I, I wouldn't want to participate <laughs> in these banker globalist wars, and most of them just uh, are. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for rejoining us. Again, we're in the second hour of this live broadcast. And back to the issue of the Middle East right now. I want to welcome onto the program guest from the UK. Uh, her name is... Uh, Tagrid Al-Mahwaid, uh, she is with the Palestinian Refugee Project based in Wales in the UK. Uh, Tagrid, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
And uh, Tagred, this issue has really gripped uh, UK politics, and it's. Uh, I think it's going to potentially be a contributing factor, I think, as to where support is going to go uh, in the country for the next general election. Certainly, mm -hmm. it's hit labor pretty hard uh, because yes. of their support for Israel. Uh, with the Conservative Party, of course, that's uh, pretty much a non-issue. They're going to be backing Israel to the hilt. But uh, with labor, a lot of people were shocked uh, at Keir Starmer and his positions being so um, you know, completely strident uh, against Palestine and what's going on in Gaza. But tell us about your organization and uh, how you're engaging right now with this issue from a British perspective. Go ahead. Well, um, well, my organization, as you can, you know, I told the Palestinian Refugee Project is for the Palestinian, mainly in the diaspora or who've been misplaced uh, in uh, the occupied Palestine. Because most people in Gaza already come in uh, from other uh, towns, cities, villages destroyed by the Zionists. What we're trying is to support the civilians in Gaza as much as we can. Uh, and this is after they were desperate and asking for help. Uh, their children are uh, sick most of the time. Uh, diseases, uh, epidemic, they are telling us this happening because the corrupts of the bodies in the, is, is left. Nobody to recognize them or where to bury them. Or some of them are frightened to go and do their uh, duties to bury the bodies because they'll be shot at by the Zionists. So we're trying to raise awareness about the occupation and the genocide in Gaza right now, making the politician uh, support us to ask for a ceasefire, which uh, plenty of the British are uh, politician are trying to make it as it's a, they can't make it for, as in Wales, the foreign office in England is responsible. So they push it towards the English, the same as in Scotland. So yes, we're trying just to show the, the narrative, the Palestinian narrative of what is happening and which is not only the 7th of October, it started 1948. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm afraid lots of people, I started my project to raise awareness about this war, this uh, occupation for years and years. And until today, I found some uh, British uh, public, even politician, uh, they don't know that there is refugee existed. There is Palestinian refugee. So it's been hard work for us to tell them what is happening for real and bring them uh, uh, evidence for them to believe us yeah this is an important issue uh tagred you know my, myself i've uh encountered palestinian refugees in syria uh in my work there uh and also in lebanon of course many um and but and and i know in egypt and other surrounding countries jordan has also taken in many palestinian refugees mm -hmm. over the decades but a lot of people are and maybe you can explain there's palestinians internally displaced within palestinian territories yes. who are who are for for whatever reason uh either 
they're they're pretty much stuck in the camps where they're living in multi-generational people don't have a concept of this in the west they really don't understand why they think why why don't they just leave the camp you know why don't they just move to you know another uh you know part of the city or whatever why they still live in these these camps can you explain the the predicament explain the situation for westerners that don't understand how this has happened it, it it's um it is difficult for people to understand that uh, the palestinians the native are uh, for example in, in in gaza when they turned the palestinian state it's to two places which is the west uh, bank and gaza and both are uh, controlled by the zionist army and it, it it's it's not easy for us as a Palestinian to keep repeat that we are human and we have human rights and we should have our own homeland back to ourselves. Uh, but the, the, the well, to say like the Zionist being, uh, you know, the, the, the social media and the propaganda making it, uh, it's okay for them to put us in 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 a blockade like Gaza and uh, to limit our human rights um of of it's just sometimes it's overwhelming to keep talking as if I am not a human right and I don't exist especially you know being Palestinian. So yeah, it's not up to us to do anything. It's up to Israeli to to do, you know. Sorry. I think I think what you're what? trying to say is to to raise awareness of of the plight. I mean, I was just trying to get a better picture um, because this is a difficult thing to explain. Like for instance, the Al Jabi the uh, refugee camp's been bombed multiple times yeah. by the and, uh, by the Israelis. And, and, and Americans, especially, they're saying, how is there a refugee camp within Gaza? Like, what they, they thought well, there's only refugee camps in surrounding Outside. countries. No, yes, we're that, that's the point. They expelled even my family in north of Palestine. Are we are expelled? The one who's left in the occupied Palestine, because I am Palestinian from the diaspora in Lebanon, the one who's left in Palestine, they are expelled from our own. A village to another one and as again making a small Palestinian community so it's it's the force and the, the crimes of the Zionists to put us in a in a like a, a, like Guantanamo but in our uh, homeland and about the refugee people um, they forgotten that we are more than 14 million refugee around the world right now it's so and other the one who's in, in the occupied Palestine, the, the, the number is getting bigger and it's it's getting uh, more difficult. And the number of the Palestinian the refugee, whether in, in the occupied Palestine or outside in the diaspora, the number getting uh, bigger than the space. And it, it's 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 forcing them for any action you can watch on TV. They are taken. 
Yeah. So yeah, that's the other thing. It, and it brings us back to the very uh, complex and divisive issue of the right of return. And this is one of the problems uh, with the current situation right now. And also with the, uh, the two state solution, the one state solution, all of these different solutions that are being tabled. Um, certainly Israel, the regime in uh, Tel Aviv at the moment, they don't want any uh, Palestinians yeah. returning at all to the Holy Land. So that's one of the big problems, isn't it? People can't return back to their family homes or their villages and so forth. And, and that's the fundamental, uh, fundamental uh, uh, and the core of the problems. So that's what you can see when they narrow in the, uh, the argument to Gaza and West Bank as that is the only problem for them. Uh, or what they are uh, going to deal with. They don't know, like I said, the 14 million. We are uh, forced to, to, to fight for our right of return and the freedom of Palestine. Uh, they making us and putting us under pressure and the same as the people in Gaza and the West Bank. So they are mistaken what their policy. If they think that this 14 million will forget about it, they are wrong. They are making sure we're determined to fight for, uh, you know, to continue the fight to return to Palestine. And also the, the, the priority right now, I mean, if you were put to put a priorities on here, you talked I, about a ceasefire that, that also has to be accompanied by, uh, the return of all aid into, uh, Gaza, all the normal levels of aid need to be resumed immediately. So what, what's keeping yeah. this from happening right now? Where, where is the political roadblock? Uh, I'm talking about the UK. Um, you can mm. speak to that right now. I can tell you about the United States. It's a bigger problem. But um, what, what what is standing in the way here of this happening? Because certainly it's, it would be the right thing to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis international law, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Geneva Conventions, the Genocide Conventions. Yes. There's plenty of reasons mm. to do this. What, what's standing in the way in the UK? Uh, it's 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 their uh, you know the Zionist lobby who's controlling the UK. Uh, it's uh, they can't they can't uh, they need to follow the instruction of the Zionist of what to do. Or uh, so that's that is, is something. It's um, it's it's. It, in a way, I think when they start to get the blockade, uh, to the aid, the help them with the aid to the occupied Palestine, that will be a declare of genocide. And if it was uh, declared, that means they are liable to charges because it's uh, war crimes. So that is one of the reasons right now to protect themselves is to try to avoid any help for the Palestinian. And as well as what is their instruction? Plus, there is the problem at the uh, borders between uh, the Palestine and e Egypt. No one is allowed to pass in or out without the permission of the Zionists, the Israeli. Before even the Egyptian, they need to say yes or no. So at the end, it's who's control the Zionist. Israel. That's a that's a good point because uh, with regards to the Rafah border crossing in Egypt, even though Egypt uh, controls the the border entrance into Gaza, yeah. within internally there's Israeli checkpoints, right? Um, yeah. in, once you get inside, so the people say, "Oh, it's all Egypt's fault. Egypt controls this. Egypt is that," but that's not 100 percent true. Israel controls internally the checkpoints and the access into Gaza, right? 
I'm not sure if there's the, the, the Zionists exist in, in the checkpoints, but what I know is the the Egyptian will follow the accept like uh, the instruction or direction of the Israeli. I am telling you this because we were helping a Palestinian with a visa, British visa, to come and join his wife in the United Kingdom, which is now next to the border, just waiting the Egyptian authorities and the Israeli to let him pass. And um, um, physically, I don't know if there is an Israeli well, checkpoint, but I think, yes. Yeah, I think what I, what I what I learned recently is that uh, Egypt can direct uh, any entrance down uh, one yes, or two one of two roads, and one of them takes you outside of Gaza into Israeli territory, and then back into yes. Gaza. And so it, Egypt has the ability to do that. Now, if they bypass that, then Israel could could regard the ship shipments as potential threats. So there have been multiple airstrikes uh, as well by the Israelis. They have they have fired on the Rafah border crossings for that basis. Yes. So it becomes a safety issue. So in effect, the Israelis do control uh, what yes, comes in and is. out of, of Rafah, yes. right? Yeah. And even in Britain, as we said, it's uh, yes. Yeah, and also we're, we're we're very familiar with the power of the uh, Israeli embassy. Of course, having watched a great documentary series by Al Jazeera called The Lobby, The Lobby yeah. Britain and The Lobby US. So that really details how well controlled uh, British politics mm -hmm. are in terms of this issue. I think that was made a few years ago. It's even yeah. more relevant today. But uh, we've we've got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to um, give you uh, an opportunity uh, to talk um, right now about the humanitarian situation um, in the Gaza Strip. So um, there, there are a number of hospitals that have been destroyed. Medical yes. facilities have been destroyed. Schools have been targeted. UN yes. facilities have been targeted. UN workers have been killed. Many medical workers have been killed. Many journalists have been killed. Okay, so from a from a day to day point of view, is there a concern that the people of Gaza are not getting enough food right now? We know there's problems with water, electricity, but what about the actual the the, the food stuff? Because we still have millions of people living there. Go ahead. Well. Uh I've just, I've, I've just, before I start uh, the interview, I was speaking with one of my Palestinian brothers in Gaza, and that's affected me because emotionally, it's difficult to see when they send sometimes pictures. They are sleeping in the streets because he can't find a place and give the priority for his family, females, and they don't have water. They've been kicked out from hospitals because they said water is for the casualties, you know, there's no food. Uh, in one room, there's 70 uh, person, 70-ish person. Um, sanitary for their wives, there's nothing. They end up looking for any fabrics they could find. Uh, the death toll as well reached close to uh, more than 19,000, plus more than 52,000 injured, the martyrs. Uh, close to, think by tomorrow it will be 20,000. So um, we need more help. I'm seeing lots of organizations claiming they are helping, but they are not reaching all the points. Maybe in Khan Yunus, they're getting some help, but in Deir el Balah, some areas, I've uh, shared a video today for one of my Palestinian brothers there and showing you the dreadful and the horrific condition they are living in. And we need to remember that Gaza been living this blockade since 
1967, but since 2005, it's it's 2006. It's been tremendously horrible, and it's it's not fit for a human being to live in. So they need help. We have uh, 45,000 uh, pregnant women. We have uh, 68,000 breastfeeding uh, women, and they are not getting water, food, and uh, any facilities to help them to be safe and have um, a safe pregnancy. So we need more work and we need more to raise more awareness about the occupation, but only this 7th of October. Yeah, of course, because this uh, this didn't just start on the 7th of October, much to uh, the surprise of many people who all of a sudden uh, started following this issue after not even yeah. thinking about it uh, for forever. Um, but uh, the other thing that's really concerning as well, maybe you can comment on this. You mentioned at the beginning of the segment about burials. OK, so Islamic customs are different than Western customs in terms of uh, when a body is being buried after uh, a person yeah. has been deceased. And so explain the problem here because they they do not have access to cemeteries. So you're forcing to bury bodies even in this in the dividers on the roads in the middle where they have the uh, the landscaping uh, flowers normally in the center of the street or any kind of lot. Um, it, so because it has to be done very quickly, doesn't it? Because of Islamic yes. burial tradition. Yes. Go ahead. They couldn't. I was told by one of my Palestinian brothers in uh, Gaza, they can't reach somebody's because, as I said, they are frightened to be killed. So they leave in it. Be, they don't want to be dead. And the problem as well recently, if you've seen online, there was some cats eating the, cor uh, the, the dead bodies. And it's because some areas it's just like the battlefields between the uh, hamas and uh, the zionist army so it, it's preventing them from doing anything right now they are burying people anywhere they could find it's appropriate no yes. the, the, the muslim ceremony they're not doing it they're just burying if they could if they can't they leave, they are leaving it the diseases are spreading because of this and the epidemics it's 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 going uh, to a state where um, people having heart attacks, men and women, because of all of this stuff. The stress. Yeah, the stress, stress. of having to cope with it. Yeah, the day-to-day yes. -day stress. I, I'm, I was speaking to one uh, resident from Gaza. He said, uh, from, from the moment I wake up, the first thing I think about is I'm going to have to walk two miles to charge my phone or to mm -hmm. charge my radio or whatever, and then I wait, go to the market another mile. I wait to see if there's something to buy. Maybe there'll be something, maybe not. Maybe some food, yes. maybe not. Then he moves to get something else. Maybe go to see if a member of his family is okay and just walking in circles every day 10 14 miles a day that's the the average day uh for for the because there's no economy functioning there's nothing happening in terms of work for for many people um so that's the reality of the situation and i don't think people realize that that's the day-to-day -day life um and, yes. and that, that's if you're alive um, or, or if you know your life is not directly under under threat of being bombed wherever you're living, but um, I don't think people understand uh, the the severity of the situation there. It's just beyond anything yes. we've seen before. So what what are we now? We're in the seventieth day or something. We're what week number yes. nine or something like yes. this. 
Yes, we are uh, getting close to week number 10, I think. I, I must calculate because every day I'm waking up and sleeping. I start to wake up trying to look for ways or, you know, contact to make to make sure they could help Palestinians. Because what we're having a problem, some won't like to move out of Gaza, others want to stay. So we want our human rights to be um, force, forced uh, for us until they determine the Palestinian Gaza what they want to do, whether to stay or get out. And, and, and um, I think as my last request is I, I want people to help in a peaceful way. I want the protest to be peacefully and it's to boycott. It is the, the, the thing they hate the most if, if somebody hit them in their bank balance. You know, it's it's they want to keep it high all the time. So we should boycott all the products, anyone, uh, any organization, any company which is anti-Palestinian and pro the Zionist. And um, I, I just I just I, I just want people to know um, there's lots of victims here. They don't have the opportunity or the platform to share with. So we need to communicate with the people in Gaza as much as we can. And what's uh, one of the good ways to do that? Certainly that uh, we're on X uh, Twitter Spaces as well. There's some excellent spaces there. This is how we're sort of getting, uh, you know, some 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 information from the ground uh, in these yeah. places as well, and and also a big. Uh, uh, a big asset uh, in the UK is a Palestinian ambassador to the UK, uh, Hussam mm. uh, Zomla, too, who has been very good yes. at uh, yes. getting information to the public and, and in the Western media, too. So yes. he's been working very hard uh, and he's been a great, a great asset, I think, uh, to to getting people uh, awake on this issue. But um, I want to thank you uh, as well for joining us uh, for this segment, Tagrid Al-Mahwaid uh, from the Palestinian Refugee Project in Wales in the UK. Thank you for yes. joining us. At <laughs> thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, sorry, in the beginning, I was a little bit uh, under pressure and a little bit nervous thank right. you very much and no, we we understand it's a very difficult time it's a very difficult issue i know you've got a lot of family uh, uh who are under uh siege at the moment there so we uh our our prayers and everything our wishes best wishes going out to you and everybody you your family your friends and everybody very difficult time right. but um thank you takrit thank you look we're going to we're going to take a break right now with TNT, today's news talk. We'll come back for the final segment of the final hour. We'll be linking up with Blake Lovewell for a look at what's happening in finance, but also in the crypto space as well. So we'll connect him in just a moment. Stay right there. Be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Remember that song years ago, Lunatic Fringe? I know you're out there. Believe me, I know they're out there. I simply watched these people in the climate change cabal and listen to what they say. John Kerry is out there and I will give him credit. At least he did not say a half billion people like Hillary Clinton, but the latest is that climate change is causing respiratory problems and has killed a half million people. Now, where do these statistics come from? Are there death certificates now that say you died because of climate change? But we've got this guy from France, I guess, Francois Gimon, a professor at the University of Liège and a specialist in environmental geopolitics. 
what the heck is that? He spoke on French TV about the threats of cats and dogs. Listen to this one. Cats and dogs are a disaster for the climate. A cat is a disaster for biodiversity. Do you hear that, Maisie and Shooter? And a dog is a disaster for the climate. Positive proof, folks. The lunatic fringe, except they may not be fringe anymore, is indeed out there. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog. Oh my goodness, a dog. That's a disaster for a climate. Asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. What do I love about riding? It's the thrill. The excitement. Riding gives me a sense of freedom. I feel so connected to the road. Riding is like therapy to me. It makes me feel alive. Love riding? Back off. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, here we go, here we go. Final segment, final hour of this live broadcast. I'm going to be joined in a moment. I'll bring on to the program uh, our good friend Blake Lovewell, but uh, I want to say thank you to our previous guest, Takrid Al-Mahwait, from the Palestinian Refugee Project in Wales. Very emotional topic for her, and I know a lot of people who are working in this space who have actually have family uh, on the ground there, who have lost family on the ground. We've had them on the show. It's very sad. I've also spoke to many of them uh, since this whole thing began uh, on October 7th. And I'm following this for years, by the way. We've been covering this story for a long time. Myself, I've been engaged probably for 25 years. Been writing, talking, doing work on it for 20, probably about 20. So it's like when this happened on October 7th, it wasn't like a big shock. I didn't know, have any questions about what was going on with the situation. I know everything that was was happening, everything that led up to this. It wasn't a surprise at all what happened on October 7th. What was a surprise was the amount of lies being told in the mainstream media and all the fake stories that the Israeli uh, information machine was putting out. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Like, why would you have to put out that much uh, fake news? why you must not have a very strong case i don't know maybe as that has something to do with it we can litigate that later anyway uh as we have previously anyway so we'll have plenty of time to do that i want to bring on to the program however uh blake lovewell he's a contributor to 21stcenturywire.com blake blake how are you doing hey there patrick i'm doing pretty well um hope you're doing well as well and yeah a powerful segment there yeah, it was it was uh, so Blake uh you're probably uh excited, smiling, a bit giddy about the Bitcoin rally. And I noticed there's a lot of other coins that have ridden that wave as well. So we're seeing again that not not as much as before, but we're seeing some continuity between the other altcoins, Ethereum, some of the main coins following the trends on Bitcoins. What a rally it's been. A lot of people are kicking themselves, Blake, that they weren't buying into Bitcoin when it was down six months ago. They're really kicking themselves right now. So what do you make of all this? And does how does this bode for uh, other parts of the economy right now? Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it was significantly down. And um, this year we've seen the price at, at its lowest was about... Um, uh, near $18,000. I think it was actually about $19,000 per Bitcoin. Uh, so we've more than doubled from there. So um, if you put all your um, 
uh, spare money into it there, you would see a, a return of 100% um, within one year. Um, but then we can't forget that, that at that time, um, Bitcoin was facing a, a real maelstrom, uh, a storm out on the ocean. And, and um, Bitcoin is is kind of out there alone. There are all these other coins and so on. But, um, you know, it's it's dependent on itself and its own code to prove to prove itself. It doesn't have uh, huge lobbyists working for it. Yes, there are uh, influencers and scam fluencers um, and all sorts of people involved in trying to promote Bitcoin and particularly promote other coins um, for their own profit. But um, that's a tiny industry when you compare it to, say, the um, PR efforts of the um, Israeli state, or you know, um, you know, any anything else, uh, any gargantuan uh, PR budgets that can just spend and spend. Bitcoin has to prove itself to uh, do that. And um, at that time, the maelstrom involved um, the collapse of um, Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX, mm. and you know, the the tie-ins um, that had grown in in somewhat of a, a cancerous way into the uh, the lifeblood of cryptocurrency as a whole. Um, but then, but then that has been to a great extent extricated. Um, I wouldn't say the scams in crypto are dead. I think we've only just got got beginning on on cryptocurrencies in general. But um, back then, when the price was at its lowest, I can see why people would not have got in because yeah, you had not only the scams of FTX, you had lots of doubts about regulation. There wasn't a lot of um, uh, signs of institutional adoption. Whereas in previous years, you know, there was this constant uh, attempt to uh, get you know, uh, large payment providers to accept cryptocurrency or to use cryptocurrency as shops or so on and so forth. And and I think people were seeing uh, through a period of uh, 2020 and 21, there was a lot of easy money and people were putting that easy money into cryptocurrencies, not necessarily Bitcoin. They fell for the uh, altcoin meme because they missed the boat. They feel like they missed the boat on Bitcoin's gains. So they go for a new project that will just do the same thing. Lots of people went for Ethereum for that reason, um, thinking that with its more uh, higher programmability that it would offer these kind of futuristic uh, um, results. And it may well do so in the future. I know that um, some big payment providers want to tie in with the Ethereum network and a lot of CBD work um, uh, would tie in a lot closer with Ethereum's technology than with Bitcoin's. Uh, Bitcoin's a bit more independent of that. But um, one good thing in, in terms of Bitcoin we saw was uh, a routing of the altcoins. And you mentioned now that as Bitcoin rallies, everything else sort of follows um, the, the saying, uh, ships rise, uh, all ships rise with the same tide uh, kind of falls in there. But we definitely saw a lot of these uh, altcoins or uh, as they're you know, polite, in polite company referred to, um, they, they were kind of routed and, and left by the wayside. And I think people have lost a lot of faith in um, some sort of vent venture capitalists starting up a new technology that's going to be the new Bitcoin. I, I think now Bitcoin's sort of proven itself through this um, big dip um, and now gain to be the kind of kingmaker uh, and, and all else follow in its wake. Um, but then, you know, true Bitcoin maximalists will say it's not about the US dollar price. Uh, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin as the maxim goes. Um, because once your once your um, value of uh, you know of currency is in, into the electronic sphere in terms of Bitcoin, um, it can exist there, and the amount of Bitcoin you hold remains level. So if um, you know the dollar goes uh, uh, to flame around you, um, the Bitcoin you hold will still be the exact same amount. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's so much to say about this. But um, yeah, how do you feel um, about this? Uh, you know. Uh, rise in Bitcoin again, another Pyrrhic rise, perhaps. 
Well, I think I think what happened was in the previous uh, rallies and you know bull and bear markets, it it really shook out the casual investor or the sort of you know short term opportunist investors are really shaken out, and that's why uh, a lot of people didn't come back in immediately uh, when it started to recover during this current rally. But you have the institutional investment piece which has come in we're talking about the efts and all the rest of it which we covered yeah. in this program before so i think it's it's kind of in that mature phase right now so you're not going to you might not see those extreme volatility swings but you're going to see more consistent and steady you'll still see some volatility but it won't be mm -hmm. as extreme as before so the gains won't be as extreme but yet the losses might not be um, either, but I think right now, smart investors are like, yeah, buy, buy when it's low. You know, it's like there's no question. Yeah. There's no question. And so all all the opportunists, the short term thinkers, they've been shaken out of the market right now. So you just got mature, yeah. mature, mature crypto uh, people yeah. in, in the Bitcoin space. Well, yeah, the the metaphor in, in the crypto sphere is paper hands. Um, you know, Peter Schiff had uh, uh, paper hands because uh, he couldn't uh, deal with Bitcoin when with the volatility. Whereas those who hold it over, you know, a decade or more, they have diamond hands because they never let go. Um, whether or not these are good investment strategies, that's kind of up for the listener to decide. Um, because you know anything can change, but yeah, we're talking about economic headwinds here, and and um, if Bitcoin can offer some safe harbor uh, in a period of economic crisis, then uh, that's an untapped source of value. Because um, during the whole of Bitcoin's life, uh, the dollar has seemed like a safe bet. Um, Bitcoin, <clears throat> of course, inculcated just after the two thousand and eight finan great financial crisis, um, but the dollar since then has been on this uh, extend and pretend journey of a uh, massive monetary printing. Um, and I think we're really seeing the um, death knells ringing for that. The Fed is uh, tossing and turning at night trying to decide whether it will pivot or not. Um, I think that really uh, it's bigger than the Fed as well. Um, we're talking about the global trends of de-dollarization and so on, um, and multiple black swans coming coming down the pipeline. So um, that's where Bitcoin could potentially see these massive gains again. And you know, it's, it's unforeseeable now. It's past the event horizon. Um, but, but, you know, there's so many uh, signs that um, uh, there's a massive economic crisis coming in 2024. So let's talk about the macroeconomic piece. Okay, so what, what does that scene look like? I mean, you, 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 you've made the case there, Blake, that Bitcoin mm -hmm. stands on the periphery ready to benefit uh, from any major crash. It's become a kind of, what, a financial safe haven, a hedge against inflation, all the things that gold is, a custodial yeah. asset and a hedge against inflation. So it's proven itself to be that. So what then does the landscape look like in the next six mm -hmm. to 12 months? What are you seeing? Well, I would couch this in the terms that even though I'm sort of very pro cryptocurrency in, in the hands of the people that I don't think that Bitcoin is perfect. Mm. I mean, we're at record high fees right now, which means, you know, if you're sending a million dollars around the world, it's still incredibly cheap compared to any other way. But if you're sending, um, you know, you're paying for a coffee, uh, the price of a coffee is also the transaction fee. So it's not perfect right now. There's layer twos. But so I couch it with that hesitancy that Bitcoin's, you know, not the perfect life raft, but it's definitely a lot more uh, floating than the uh, Titanic that most of the global economy is on. Um, what we're looking at there is this uh, massive 
global pivot uh, from the uh, U.S. hegemony to a sort of multipolar BRICS hegemony, um, which which means um, you know not the end of the dollar, but a definite diminishment of world power of the dollar. Right now, we're sort of waiting to see whether uh, Saudi Arabia will stay you know on the U.S. side of the chessboard or will move flip over. Over um, Putin meeting with uh, uh, Saudi leaders right now, um, you know, kind of tells a, a bit of a tale. Um, and so, if we've got this complete pivot towards the BRICS, there's a global reordering. Um, we're seeing uh, right now a kind of global um, uh, depression uh, of economic um, value uh, where. Prices are going up, but the value of the currencies are going down at the same time. And this is not just with re- restricted to one country. It's, it's it's kind of worldwide. And in that kind of environment, it means that um, the wheat becomes separated from the chaff. It's uh, the hard times that create strong men. It's, it's uh, um, you know, we've had the disruption of supply chains and then we've had this period of uh, easy money. Um, but I think that's coming to an end. So when easy money comes to an end, frivolous expenses have to come to an end. And then, you know, the, the favorite uh, um, trope of modern politicians comes in difficult decisions have to be made uh, I always laugh when they say that because for them it's not very difficult uh, it's a stroke of their very fancy uh, fountain pen and they probably have a, a nice profit to be made which whichever way they decide um, so for them it's not a difficult decision but these are the real difficult decisions um, you know between uh, feeding you know your kids or clothing your kids or you know uh, keeping the lights and heating on and so on that uh, so many around the world uh, have to face daily um, and it's and it's only the 0.1 percent who can actually um, you know live in comfort without having to face those decisions and and the, the more that the global economy gets uh, has its life force sucked out by uh, usurious um, banks and global corporations uh, the more the poor must suffer um, so you know uh, the, the elites are planning for this. We know about the Great Reset. We've known for a few years that's kind of their uh, oper- modus operandi. Um, looking forward uh, for the next few years um, is this kind of global reordering. Um, but one can only be optimistic and hope that, um, you know, an, an ascendant Africa um, and with the technologies um, of the Internet can um, kind of veer away and we can have our own uh, reset or reorganization. Uh, and we don't necessarily need the uh, top down oligarchs to uh, uh, make the decisions for us anymore. Wow. So what are those hard choices, Blake? Uh, well, for Hunter Biden, it's, uh, you know, we're going to go for crack or amphetamines. Um, but what about for the elites, uh, am I going to have a Lamborghini uh, or we're going to have to downgrade to a Mercedes? Uh, but for the average person, what are those hard choices? Is it going to be, is it going to be the property market? Are we going to invest or not stay renting? But for, for the average person right now, if that shock is coming, which you're alluding to, a lot of people would agree with you, Blake, it's coming. But what are those hard choices going to be for the average punter? Well, it's already here, I'd say, in uh, the USA. I was, I was listening to uh, statistics today. As always, you know, I love to have fun. So, um, But the statistics I heard were the real terms inflation on food is about 20%. Mm-hmm. That means your $1 at the start of the year by the end of the year is um, 80 cents. And also the food price probably goes up in the interim too. But um, for energy, it's actually much higher on um, average for the consumer energy bills, including gasoline or petrol into your vehicle. Um, that's up 50%. And mm-hmm. so that really kind of um, halving the number of miles that you can drive in your vehicle, which is a restriction of your freedom. Um, it's it's taking a big chunk out of your food budget. 
which means you may take the cheaper, less healthy option, you know, less whole foods, a bit more Costco, um, to use American examples, you know, they, um, but, you know, like, a, um, it doesn't have to be like that, though. You know, I'm, I'm always an optimist and, you know, um, you can get local cheap uh, vegetables and well-fed uh, grown meat. Um, it's a bit of a reordering. So that's why I think any reset or any revolution or any uh, stock market crash or whatever it may be offers a massive chance uh, uh, for change. But, the, you know, the difficult decisions are going to be uh, just that, you know, your, um, your health uh, is your wealth. But can you look after your health without wealth? Um, you know, uh, in in America, it's it's already in a pretty bad state with uh, health insurance. But then, if uh, those insurance companies come under the under the economic cost, then you know you're going to be forced to make healthcare decisions. And there's probably going to be lucrative um, options offered for uh, onboarding with a CBDC, where you can have um, you know some free money, five thousand free dollars for signing up with the CBDC system, um, or you know deals or discounts already in uh, UK supermarkets. Almost all of them have this uh, membership discount, and if you're not a member, you're paying this uh, non-member premium. Yep. And I would they, say all of, the, all of those are scams. Data, and they take your data and they, they, they analyze and monitor everything that you're buying and consuming. Mm -hmm. They can even do mm -hmm. a calorie. They can even do a daily uh, calorie calculation. Uh, and you add that to your smartphone mm -hmm. that's, that's tracking how many steps you take and so forth. They're profiling you, Blake, and deciding whether you're worthy or not of that uh, CBDC government uh, handout, insurance voucher, et cetera. That's what I know. And I know, and I know we're almost up, but I saw today news that um, they're going to bring fingerprinting in at the uh, UK border with Europe, um, the UK previously part of Europe, but not in the EU for for a few years. Um, but I already went through fingerprinting at the Shanghai um, border to yeah. China, um, and it's a very invasive kind of feeling procedure, but you've got no choice. You've landed on a plane, but I mean, there's no escaping the panopticon sometimes, but um, us rebels are always out there seeking ways to do so yeah biometrics that's what it's all about listen uh i'll tell you well i can talk about the false economy of the food industry as well that's another topic for discussion maybe we'll push that off uh to another another uh segment blake but blake lovewell thank you so much uh for joining us looking forward to your uh, also your writings at 21stcenturywire.com in the coming weeks and months as well but uh, we appreciate your Appreciate you coming on the show. That's all we got time for, ladies and gentlemen. We're here at TNT, today's news talk. It's been a brilliant episode. Thank you to all our guests from the Bronx Anti-War Coalition, also from the Palestinian Refugee Project in the second hour, Basil Valentine Blake. Love well from all of you. Thank you so much from all of us to all of you. Thank you, everybody in the TNT chat room as well. You guys have been brilliant. Appreciate you guys in there, keeping it real always and every time. I'll see you guys tomorrow, same time, same place. We've got a powerful show tomorrow, by the way. So you do want to be buckled up and ready to go. I'm Patrick Kenningson. This has been TNT. Take care. <laughs>